So we're in the book of Matthew chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull that out, uh, or your phones, pull it out on your phones. It's great to just be able to have it in your hand to go back to. And our goal is really to understand Scripture and allow our understanding of Scripture inform the rest of our life. We do that through our small groups. Uh, We get together during the week, and we actually read and try to get a grasp of the passage we're going to go through on Sunday. And I've seen that uh, pay dividends when we come together and uh, desire even more, understanding more of God's word. And, and that's why we preach through one book at a time. Most, most of the Sundays we spend um, just kind of working through a book of the Bible. And hopefully as I teach it to you um, or other people teach it to you, it also, it doesn't just teach you what this passage is about, but it teaches you how to read the Bible in general. So we're hoping that both things happen. All right, it says, in those days, so this is like 25 years after our last episode of Jesus going from uh, being persecuted as a child to um, Egypt as a refugee, as an immigrant, back, back, to, um, back to Israel. And that's kind of his childhood growing up. And now he's right about to enter his ministry. He's about 30 years old. And the first thing we see is John the Baptist coming into the scene and uh, other gospels have him has like his birth narrative. But here we jump into maybe the apex or the highest point of his ministry. And what he is, is he's kind of like little John. Anyone um, listen to rap? Um, He's like little John. He's like the hype man, right? He's just like, uh, he's just like getting everyone hyped for Jesus. But he's also this throwback to like old school prophets. And we haven't seen old school prophets for 400 years. There's been no prophets. And so people have kind of forgotten what that even looks like, right? 400 years is twice the history of the United States. That's a long time. And, and when John walks onto the scene, everyone's like, that's an old school prophet. You know, uh, my friend, he was like a original hipster before hipsters were in. And then hipsters started becoming cool. And then I opened a magazine and it has like, what is a hipster? And it has this person, right? With tight jeans, holding a mason jar, you know, a specific haircut. And he rock climbs. I was like, Mark, you're a hipster, you know? He's like, no, I'm not. He's literally holding a mason jar. Literally holding a missing jar, just like the photo with tight jeans and, you know, everything that makes up a hipster. And uh, he was super embarrassed, and I laughed a lot. And that's how John the Baptist is, right? He's this old school prophet. He wears camel hair and a leather belt, and that was exactly what Elijah wore. Elijah the prophet wore camel hair, you know? Uh, they hung out in the desert. They When they spoke, it was like really blunt and straightforward, and it was pretty much the mouthpiece of God. So they're looking at this guy. They're like, dude, he's like, he's like a time traveler. Like he, this is like straight out of the Old Testament. So, um, so one of the greatest functions of John the Baptist is he kind of ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together. He's saying that Jesus' ministry is a continuation, a fulfillment of all these old school prophets who have been talking about him. He's kind of that bridge. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. So an Isaiah prophesied about this prophet. 
That's kind of cool. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes was made up of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So there's this old school prophet in the desert eating like really simplistic food, whatever's native to the desert, some protein, some sugar, some good calories. And then people would come to the desert and they would confess their sins. And that was a big part of how John the Baptist prepared people for the coming of, of Jesus. And I really love this desert scene, how he was in the desert and how he brought people into the desert. And this desert place was really... Um, it's this reoccurring space in the history of the Israelites and even Jesus as he goes to the wilderness to be tempted and oftentimes spends nights in the wilderness for prayer. And I think we need some of those desert spaces in our life. Let me describe it like this. My, my kid, Liam, we have a playpen for him. It's all his toys, his books, and uh, three volleyballs. Yes, I'm brainwashing my child. And when I go into the playpen and I pick him up, I just, sometimes I just want eye contact. I'm like, Liam, it's just the two of us. Let's just hold each other. Let's just be present, right? But he's grabbing for like the ball pit. He's trying to move towards uh, the books. He wants to chew on like the, the little flashcard with animal pictures. And so what do I do? I pick him up out of the playpen at times and I take him to the bedroom and I just throw him on our, our king size bed and there's no distractions. And I just get to hold him and look him in the eyes and throw him around and, and tickle him with my chin. And, and then I throw him into the air and he drops onto the bed and it's okay because his neck muscles are more developed now. And, um, and that's part of the desert's tough because there's a stripping away of stuff. But then there's this other beautiful part of the desert that in the barrenness, we get to see God face to face because all the distractions are gone. And that's where John the Baptist lives. And that's where he draws people to. And his central message is this, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And we see Jesus repeat that. The first line of his preaching in Matthew chapter four is this exact phrase, repent for the kingdom of God is near. So we're going to spend a lot of time there. In the next passage, it says, but when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. That's not nice. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And, you, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His whittling, winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
Uh, we're going to talk about two things really quickly, kind of commentary style. One is about the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the other is three references to the word fire. All right? So Pharisees and Sadducees. These are the religious leaders at the time. These are the pastors. These are the rabbis, the teachers of Scripture. These are the people that everyone else looked up to. And the Pharisees were, or sorry, the Sadducees first, they were from the line of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, one, of Je- one of Jacob's sons. And the Levites was this whole tribe that was set apart to be priests and to kind of be this, um, be this gap filler between God and people. They would teach people how to worship God. They would lead them in worship. They would lead them in sacrificing to God. That was like their whole tribe's uh, deal, you know, like District 13 were minors. This whole tribe was, was priests, okay? And, and yet the people felt separated by them, mostly because the Sadducees, they started giving their allegiance to Rome. Rome was the conquering uh, nation at the time, oppressing the Jewish people, oppressing Israel. And yet the Sadducees got a lot of political power and money from the, these oppressors. And so the people, the Jewish people stopped like respecting them, the common people. They, they didn't want to follow them anymore because they felt like they were corrupted and they were. So these Pharisees started kind of this grassroots movement of the people. They weren't connected to the temple. They didn't have the lineage of the Sadducees from, from um, the Levites. And yet they were like hardcore about the law of God. They wanted to do everything scripture said. And so people started respecting them because they, they said, we are the true Jews. Look at everything that scripture is talking about. We're fulfilling them. And yet we see them oppose John's uh, message. And they are the greatest opponents of Jesus. They're kind of the, the villains of, of the gospels. And right when they walk up, we know that they're not walking up to be baptized. They're walking up to critique John's ministry. They're walking up to see what the fuss is about and to maybe sway people back to their side. And so John says, you brood of vipers, which is like a hardcore insult because Satan is known as the serpent. And so what he's calling them is the children of Satan, right? That's, that's not nice. <laughs> like You're a child of the devil. That's basically what he's saying. And so you see this really huge tension between John and the Pharisees. And part of that is because they were leaning on things for their righteousness that was not to be leaned on. Uh, there's this kind of old Jewish teaching that says, hey, if Abraham's your father, if you come out of the Jewish line, you get this automatic entrance into heaven. Because Abraham was so righteous that he stored up like this wealth of righteousness in heaven. So if you're defective in the amount of righteousness in your life, you can kind of borrow from Abraham's abundance of righteousness and go to heaven off of his righteousness. And that's the first thing John the Baptist attacks. He's like, Abraham's righteousness isn't going to get you into heaven. All right, here we go. And then the second thing we see is um, three references to hell, um, maybe two, depending on how you read um, the specific verse, but for sure two. So he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire, reference to hell. Um, There's this farming analogy where this farmer throws 
wheat into the air, and then the grain, the wheat heads, falls down. That's what you need to make bread. And then the stem, which you don't need, is blown away. It detaches, the stem blows away, and then again is burnt in unquenchable fire. Another reference to hell. And then the interesting one is he will baptize, he referring to Jesus, with the Holy Spirit and fire. And some commentators, not all of them, have said that either he is in, in his judgment of you, he will either uh, give you the Holy Spirit, allowing you to go to heaven, right? Because you've, you've asked for forgiveness. Or he's the one who uh, sends you to hell and fire. So that's pretty hardcore too. And we don't, you know, man, it's hard to talk about hell this week. It's hard, hard to talk about hell anytime. I don't even like saying the word hell. I feel like I'm cursing out you guys. Like I might as well be saying the F word, you know? Hell is a hard word to say. But I think if we have a closer and thoughtful understanding of it, it will better allow us to understand everything else. That a proper understanding of hell gives us a proper understanding of grace, forgiveness, Jesus, gospel, and even heaven. And an un- improper understanding of hell doesn't allow us, to, uh, takes away from our understanding of all those other things as well. So let me talk about hell and the kingdom of God. Let's see. Um, hmm. So hell, um, there's two really clear illustrations about hell. One is fire, and the other one is other darkness. But I think that both are figurative, because if they were both literal, um, you can't have a fire and be in darkness, right? Because fire produces light. So, So I think my best understanding of hell is that these figurative um, illustrations are to give us this understanding that hell is the destination where you are in complete absence of God. That hell is is being eternally separated from God. And heaven is where you are eternally in the presence of God in in complete... uh, revelation or manifestation, like where you can see God face to face, you can touch him, you can bow before him, you can hear his voice, and hell is the complete absence of God, okay? And, and in the complete absence of God, there is torment, there is darkness, there is, it feels like you're being burnt alive. And this is why. Uh, a lot of theologians will say that um, anxiety doesn't exist in and of itself, anxiety is the absence of peace. So peace is what exists, and when you pull away peace, you have anxiety, the absence of peace. Or um, hate is the absence of love. That hate in and of itself doesn't exist, but when you pull away love, all you have left is hate. Or loneliness is a great example. Loneliness is the absence of being in the company of someone. And maybe in the company of someone who cares about you, right? So you could be with people, but you could still feel alone. And loneliness is really the absence of the presence of another person. When I think about God at the end of the day, he is the source of all good. And even when we don't acknowledge him, any good we experience in our life is still because He's present, and because he extends 
his presence to us. He is the source of love. He is the source of kindness, of peace. And he allows us to experience all of those things on earth. Uh, We call it common grace, whether we believe in him or not. But during this life, we can either be facing God and wanting to walk towards him and wanting more of him, or we can spend this life facing not God. We could spend this life loving and orienting our life away from God onto other things. Um, I've been in conversations with friends who went to Vegas, and um, she was saying, like, their whole conversation was, with her girlfriends was about how skinny everyone was, like two hours of you look really skinny, right? I have uh, other friends who, who the whole conversation, our whole conversation is about how much money they have, but in subtle ways, you know, like they won't tell you they're worth $100 million, but they'll say that they can acquire a property worth $25 million, like cash. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you're worth like $250 million. And that's the whole, that's the whole conversation. Or you go to another space and the whole conversation is about how hot, a specific girl is, or many girls, and how they've had all of these sexual conquests. And their whole life, and our whole lives often, can be wrapped around this other kingdom, this other king serving something else. We, we see people, and we examine our own lives, and we say, man, when I look at money, my money, how I spend money, when I look at my YouTube history, my browser history, what, when I look at the conversations I have when I think about what I fantasize about, my dreams for this life, it's really oriented around my career, around my image, image management, around my body, around my achievements. And maybe God is really just an asset to accomplishing what we really want in life. What, what, I, what, what I think really will make me happy is this other thing. And that's a life oriented away from God. And I think hell, at the end of the day, is God giving people what they want. That if we spend our whole life walking away from God, that at the end of our lives, God says, and you get to be away from me. And sin and the consequence of, of walking away from him our whole life, the consequence of that is being away from him. I think that if he were to send everyone to heaven, which sounds awesome, right? Like every dog goes to heaven and now every human too. Isn't that him ripping away our will? That if, if our whole life was spent running away from God and we said, but everyone should go to heaven, isn't that God saying, no, I'm going to usurp everyone's will and just throw you in a place where you spent your whole life not wanting? I actually think that there's some injustice in that. There's something not right about that if he gives us real choice. Now, I think the most frightening part about this passage and other passages is that there's these Pharisees who think the whole time that they're working for God's kingdom. And and at the end of the day, Jesus, John is saying, "You're you're actually facing hell. You're actually facing yourself facing another agenda. That even though you go to, you do all of these religious things, um, you're, you're not depending on God. Uh, 
you're depending on these other things. And I wonder when we ask ourselves like, okay, two questions. Um, when you die, do you believe you're going to heaven, right? Question one. And then the second question, maybe most importantly is, why do you think you'll go to heaven? And some of us will say, I should go to heaven because I'm a good person. Or some of us might say, I should go to heaven because my parents were Christians. Or I, I was a PK. Or some of us say, I should go to heaven because I've given money to a church and I've served on the worship team and I come to church on Sunday and I go to a small group. But those are all the answers that the Pharisees would give. And that's, that's not what allows us to be a part of God's kingdom. Being a part of God's kingdom, how we can examine our heart to say, am I really a believer? Am I really facing the Lord? At the end of the day is about repentance. And this word repentance in the Greek is two words combined. It's, it's change and mind. Repentance is really about changing our minds. And I think sometimes when we think about repentance, it comes down to singular sins, right? Like, did you stop doing that? Like, have you stopped doing that? You know, are you sad that you did that? And I don't think that when John talked about repentance and Jesus talks about repentance, that was primarily what they were talking about. It wasn't primarily about these incidentals like smoking weed, having sex, doing drugs, stealing. It wasn't talking about individual sins primarily. Primarily, it was talking about changing our minds so that saying instead of this thing being what my life is about, instead of this thing being my purpose and what will make me most happy and what I want to pursue, I actually want Jesus. I want God. And heaven is really a continuation of that. Heaven is a continuation of this earthly pursuit for God, to love God, to know God, to live for God. And heaven, if, if our whole life is spent wanting to love God more and wanting to be with him and for his purpose, then heaven's going to be amazing because that's what it's all about, right? Heaven, the best part of heaven is that we get to be with God forever, and I wonder if that has any appeal, right? If, if heaven is just about being with God, is that what we really wanted out of heaven? Or do we just want like not having to work anymore, eating like this endless awesome buffet and like living in a beach house? Or was it always about being with God? If heaven's just dumbed down to that, do we really want it? And our life is going to speak to that, Right? our heart's desire is going to speak to that. I hope that we can just kind of stop and take inventory of our life. And when we think about what it means to be a Christian, maybe we can just ask, where are we facing? What is our innermost desire? Is it to love God and to be with him forever? Or is it something else? And church is just kind of, a part of that something else. The last part um, he says is that he warns the Pharisees about is that, man, you need fruit that gives evidence to repentance. And when you think about fruit, literal fruit, it's, fruit does not give life to the tree, but it is evidence that there 
that the tree is alive. And that's how we should think about fruit uh, spiritually. Um, When you think about what gives life to the tree, fruit is not a part of that, right? It's like the roots pulling in water and nutrients from the soil, and it's the leaves absorbing the sunlight. I learned that in third grade. I still remember. I'm very proud of myself. The fruit actually doesn't contribute to life at all for the tree. But when a tree stops producing fruit, it's basically, it's basically dead. It's basically saying it's dying or it has died, right? Life gives, uh, fruit gives evidence that the tree is alive. And that's what John is, um, is speaking to the Pharisees about. You say you've been Christian for five years, for 10 years, for 20 years. Is there fruit in your life? Is there evidence of that? You know, like, and, and people can talk all they want, but you, you can see it when, like, um, like if you're into any type of hobby, I was into boxing, into rock climbing, into, into, um, I'm into volleyball, into Viking. And, and it doesn't really matter what people say, right? At the end of the day, you put on gloves and you, see, you know how good a fighter someone else is. At the end of the day, you, throw, you get on a bike and you go down a hill with challenging draws, with like rocks everywhere, and you see how good a biker is. At the end of the day, you get to a rock wall and either you could do blue or you can't, you know? At the end of the day, you go to a volleyball court and I give you a perfect set and either you're spiking it down or you're not. And, and there's this evidence of whether, of whether you really are a climber a boxer, a, uh, a mountain biker. And when you walk in the Christian faith for a while, what is the evidence that you're a Christian? The evidence doesn't make you a Christian, but there should be evidence, right? When, if I roll up my sleeve, I can show you this like, massive scar I had about mountain biking. There's like evidence that I can bike, right? Um, what is the evidence that you've walked with the Lord for 10 years? What is the evidence that you know him, that, you're, that you've lived your life for him? And, and maybe the thing that frightens me the most isn't the people who are saying, I don't know Jesus, I don't love him, and I actually just, I just want to sleep with as many women as possible. Like, that's kind of fine to me. I, I think there's this sense of like, okay, you know where you stand. I think what scares me, the passages that scare me, are people who are like, I'm probably good enough to make it, or I'm a Christian, but, but they haven't really examined their life. And so this is what it is, right? This is what today's about. Have we examined our soul and said, my life is facing the Lord, and heaven, this new earth, is just a continuation of my earthly pursuits towards him? All right. I'm almost done. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, which just means resting. I looked up the word because I didn't understand alighting. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. 
With him, I am well pleased. Um, it's a pretty awesome passage. Like Jesus is being baptized by John, in some ways endorsing John, John's ministry, John's message, as John endorses Jesus and is his hype man. But then who is the first or the primary person to endorse Jesus, to say that this is the son of God, this is, this is the person who's going to save the world from their sin? God the Father opens up the skies and just starts speaking, right? That's a pretty awesome endorsement. I would love that one day if like in the middle of my sermon, like God's like, shh, shh, Wilson's supposed to be your pastor. I'm like, yes, I knew it. Now you know it too, because God stamped that, you know? And so Jesus got the ultimate, like, like no one else can, can do that. And then there's his baptism. And I think Jesus' baptism was different than ours. A part of our baptism is as we go under the water, because the first thing I ask when people are being baptized, right? We're standing in the ocean together or in the swimming pool. And I said, do you believe you're a sinner? And do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Do you want to live for him? And when you go down into the water, it's this death to your old life to say, I'm not orienting my life towards myself, towards my pursuits, towards my lusts anymore. I'm going to give that up. And as you go into the water, the water covers your body and you'll never forget it. And as it's covering your body, what it's saying is that Jesus is cleansing all of you of all of your sins is being wiped away, is being washed away. You're being made clean. And so the water covers you and you just feel your soul being cleansed out. Um, this physical rep- representation of forgiveness. And you come out of the water and it's this new birth, this new life, this new orientation towards God. But Jesus' baptism is a little different. First, it's surprising that he would walk into the water because John's like, I can't even touch this person's sandals, right? If I was like, hey, we have a guest speaker next week. He's so holy that I can't even touch his shoes. You'd be like, dude, that guy must be really holy. But then Jesus comes in, strolls onto the scene, and he takes a position of humility and not power, which is mind-boggling even to John. But he takes not only a position of humility, he takes our position. The need that we have to be cleansed he steps into the water. And I believe, and this other commentary that I read, as he goes down into the water, it's not him being cleansed of sin. It's all the sin that we've been cleansed of through the history of the Jewish people walking into the temple to wash themselves into our next baptism. All that water that's been dirtied from our sin, that's what covers him and leads him to death. And when he comes out, There's this resurrection of him conquering sin and death for us. And at the end of the day, when we think about this U-turn, when we think about what it means to go from a life centered on ourselves and our pursuits and away from God to walking towards God, is this one moment where we say, Jesus, forgive me. I receive your forgiveness. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. And I want you to be Lord of my life. And when we think about this arrow changing trajectory 
and allowing us to bear fruit, allowing us to live a life where we forgive people, where we give to the poor, where we love our neighbors. It's, all, it's about the Holy Spirit coming onto us, resting in our souls like it does, like the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. It's not about us trying harder. You know, I've never seen a constipated tree where it's like really trying to bear fruit, right? It's just like, God, I didn't, I didn't get my fourth grape out. I need to get it out. And it's just like, ah, right? Like fruit just comes that when, it, when the vine, when the tree has enough life, fruit will come out of it. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is given to us and he's to give us life as well. And fruit will be produced as we face the Father and say we want him and we want to orient our life around him, that the, Lord, that the Spirit allows us to do that. I love, I love being Christian because when I think about human philosophy or other religions, you know, it's like they have this model, which is Jesus for us, and then maybe they have this big book that they drop on you and say, hey, live like him. Here's what he did, instruction manual. And that's pretty much it. And maybe they have like a coach that's like, here, you could do it. Look at me. I'll teach you how to do it. But, but being Christian means that not only do we have this perfect model, not only do we have scripture to teach us, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And he gives us power to change. He's the one actively changing our hearts. He's the one continuing to reorient us so that when parts of our lives are misaligned and we say, God, show us, help us to realign our lives, he does that. So I wonder today, um, where is our life facing? And where has our life faced for the last five years and 10 years? Is it oriented around and toward God or is it about something else away from him? I think that's the big repentance that Jesus and, and John talks about. This large orientation. Being Christian means, God, forgive me, and I want to orient my life around you. Maybe you said the forgive me part, but you really didn't. When you examine your life, you're like, it's not really oriented around God. And maybe for some of us, we have made that big decision. And when we look at the 10, 20-year mark, we're like, or five-year mark, we're like, man, I've really tried to live for him. I think we can still ask that question and say, God, are there parts of my life that are, that are going awry? And that was me. I was examining my life today. I'm like, I think there's still parts of my life that I need to realign. And I feel like that every day. There, there's parts where I, I want to live for the Lord, and there's other parts of my life that I'm like, oh, that's kind of off. You know, when I think about money today, it was really about me. When I thought about volleyball today, it was really about me dominating this other person and her being sad and going home and saying, like, I spiked too hard. It happened, and I was happy about it. And that's not, that's not about the Lord. So there's that big repent. God, let me orient my life around you. And there, there's all these small changing of minds as well. And I think all of us need some of that this morning. Or, or it's okay to say, I'm just really, I thought I was Christian, 
but I'm actually about this other thing. And if you're there, I, I'd rather that. Because at least you're not deceiving yourself and you can continue to ask the hard questions. God, I, we come to you this morning and um, I just pray that we would think about this message of repenting because the king and the kingdom of God is near. And this, I hope it's not an angry message. And I don't think I threw a Bible at anyone. But I, hope, I also hope it's examining, that we would be willing to simply examine our lives. And maybe it's a massive examination where we're like, man, my whole life is about something else. And either I need to change my mind on that or just admit to myself that I'm not really about Jesus. Or maybe it's these small examinations, you showing us small things in our life where it's really about something else and we want you to realign us. Would you just spend two, three minutes talking to the Lord? Where are you oriented? What is your life about? If you were to walk out the rest of your life in the direction you're going in, would you end up close to God, next to him, or would you end up totally apart from him? Yeah, today I just want to put the choice in front of you as your eyes are closed, heads are bowed, I guess. I don't know, other pastors do it like that. Um, I just want to put the choice in front of you. Like, do you want to orient your life around Christ in the big ways and in the small ways? And if today you're saying, yes, like, I want that. I want, I need a massive reorientation of my life because it was, it's been about career, it's been about women, it's been about body image, um, it's been about turning the eyes of men. I want to pray for you. I want to extend Jesus' invitation to you. You know, it says in John three sixteen, God so loved the world, everybody, Every single person in all of history, he loved every person. The entire world, super inclusive, because inclusive is in. He, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He extends this invitation to all of us, and he extends it in the most basic way, that all we have to do is believe and follow him. And all of us can make that decision in this moment. Isn't that cool? 
God actually couldn't do anything more for us except for change our will, except for take control of our will and usurp it. The only thing that stands between us and God is our heart, the orientation of our heart, our desire. Do we desire Him? If you're saying, God, I desire you, I want to be a part of your family, I want to live for you, you could be Christian today. That's all it takes. All you have to do is believe in Him and you will not perish, but you'll have eternal life. So if that's you this morning, if you're like, man, today I want to, I want to be God-facing, I'm just going to lead you into simple prayer. And it just talks about asking Him to forgive you, forgive me, and asking Him to be Lord. Um, so if that's you, go ahead and pray this prayer with me. God, I know I'm a sinner. I face the wrong direction. But today, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. And I want to spend the rest of my life walking towards you. I receive your spirit to help me do that. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that this morning, I'd love to talk to you after service and help you along in your journey.